when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with Raymond Benson, official James Bond author, author of the Black Stiletto series, just to name a few. Let's find out about his writing process, books, love of film, and more. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. And this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Hey there, this is Raymond Benson. You have a slew of titles. I mean, when it comes to talking about somebody who has written pretty much everything, you cover pretty much the gambit from, let's see, I've got video games, we've got thrillers, noir, plays, music. You you cover everything I could think about somebody writing, you're there. Um, well, so <laughs> I don't write romances. <laughs> <laughs> so introduce our listeners to what, you, what you've done. Okay, well, I've written and published over 40 books. Uh, I'm probably most well known as being the uh, third continuation author and first American author of the James Bond novels uh, commissioned by Ian Fleming's family. And uh, I did that for seven years and produced six original Bond novels and three movie novelizations. And those were based on the uh, some of the Pierce Brosnan movies. And after that, I kind of struck out on my own and developed my own thrillers and I have several original thrillers. Uh, I'm uh, probably my most successful uh, ones are the Black Stiletto. Uh, There are five books. It's a five book serial really and that's currently in development uh, for hopefully someday maybe a movie or a TV series and uh, assorted standalones. And then there's the tie-in section (laughs) of where I get hired, you know, work for hire to do novelizations of, say, video games or or whatever, where I've given scripts or something, and I turn it into a book. And I've done a lot of that. And uh, it's it's been very, very profitable and good. We're going to be diving into just about all of that. And so we'll begin with the fact that you are most notable for being a James Bond scholar and official Bond author. So what was your introduction to James Bond and how did you begin writing for at the James Bond estate? Well, uh, my introduction to James Bond occurred in late 1964 or early 1965 when my father and I went to see Goldfinger on the big screen. Uh, I was nine years old, and uh, that changed my life. (laughs) It was just, uh, you know, it opened my eyes to, uh, you know, I had no idea that (laughs) there was this world. (laughs) And, uh, you know, in the the 1960s, the James Bond movies were the Star Wars of that decade. They were the, the only big blockbuster action franchise. And I got in very early on. And in fact, um, you know, Goldfinger was the third movie. Right after the success of Goldfinger, the the film company re-released the first two movies as a double feature the following summer. So I saw the first three movies within six months of each other on the big screen. And then, you know, I started reading the books by Ian Fleming, which were everywhere at that time. You know, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing those paperbacks. And uh, I grew up with Bond. That's as simple as that. And um, later on, I mean, you know, I became a normal person. I, I, I went to college. I studied theater, actually. I was going to be a theater director. And we could even talk about that. I did many years in New York, off, off Broadway, off, off, way off, way off Broadway. 
But that's what I was doing in the early 80s. I was in, doing theater in New York City. And I was with some friends. Uh, we basically were, uh, the question came up, if you had to write a book, what would you write? And we went around the table and it came to me and I said, well, you know, I think I might write a coffee table book that's a history of James Bond. Because, you know, uh, at that time, there were no books like that. There were a couple of biographies of Ian Fleming. There was maybe two books just on the movies up to that point. Maybe a book on the novels. They were all out of print and stuff. And I wanted something that would be everything all in one book. And my friends kind of went, wow, that's a great idea. You should do that. Because they knew I knew a lot about James Bond. And I started thinking about it. And um, I talked to a friend of mine who had just published a joke book. <laughs> and I said, how'd you do that? And he introduced me to his editor at a publisher in New York. And I told her what my idea was. And she said, that's a good idea. You need to do a proposal. And I said, okay, how do I do that? And she kind of laid out what you're supposed to do for a nonfiction book proposal. And I went and, you know, spent a couple of weeks doing that and gave it to her. And I got a contract overnight to write the book. That's <laughs> so awesome. It was like, <laughs> but then it took me three years to, to do the book, you know, and I traveled to England and met members of Ian Fleming's family and his colleagues and friends and traveled to like the Lilly Library and in Indiana University where, that has all of his manuscripts. And um, when the book finally came out, this was the James Bond Bedside Companion. It was published in 1984. That was my first book. And it got nominated for an Edgar Allan Poe Award and got noticed and everything. And as a result of that, I guess about, you know, 10 years later, 12 years later, uh, the Ian Fleming family asked if I'd be interested in writing the books. Because at the time, in the 80s, another author was writing the books. His name is John Gardner. And uh, he, he was doing it up until about 1995. And then that's when they asked me. So that's it in a nutshell. With, when you're coming into writing someone else's intellectual property, do you feel that you have to come in with a love form to begin with? Or is it something that you can find love once you're already there? Well, I guess that depends on the franchise. Um, you know, if, if it's a big, big franchise like James Bond is, you know, with all these movies and all these books, it's probably best if you do know your way around that world. And, and, and I knew and I knew it like the back of my hand. I doubt I could have just gone in and go, oh, yeah, I've seen a couple of movies and read a book, a couple of books. I doubt I could have convincingly <laughs> pulled it off. But I, you know, there are, I know some tie-in writers who do take over series and stuff. And, and I don't know if, you know, how much they deep dive into the franchise. I really don't. Sometimes, you know, you get hired to write, like say a, a novelization of a movie, you know, like say, just for an example, like maybe there's a new alien movie and you have, and you get hired to write the novelization based on that screenplay. Do you have to know all the alien movies that came before it? It'd probably help. It'd probably help. Yeah, but maybe not. I don't know. I mean, do you, if you get hired to write a Star Wars book, think how many novels, how many Star Wars novels there are, you know, not to mention the movies and the TV shows and everything. Do you have to know every single novel that was written in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s? Gosh, it'd probably help, but... 
I bet you the guys writing Star Wars novels these days have not read every Star Wars novel. So in your case, did you, because uh, obviously you have your James Bond era, but you've done other intellectual properties. Uh, the one yeah. my son is most interested in right now, because number two just came out, is you did a Dying Light tie-in. You've done <laughs> uh, uh, some Metal Gear Solid. You've, uh, did you have to, did, did you come into those fresh or had that been something you were doing before? I was pretty fresh, but, but see, I also worked in the, in the gaming industry for 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. After the Bedside Companion was published in 1984, almost immediately, like, like the very next month, uh, my literary agent who I had acquired because of the book said, Raymond, we just got a call from a company that's making these computer games. You know, this is right when like, you know, the Apple II C was coming into your home, <laughs> you know, or the Commodore, <laughs> these early, early computers. And uh, the games in those days were very, very, I wouldn't say simple, but they were simplistic as far as, you know, no graphics. A lot of, a lot of them were text adventures where like, kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Infocom games like Zork, but yeah, they were like that, you know, where they tell a story and you answer questions like, you know, you were in a forest and there's a sword on the ground. What do you do? You pick up the sword. <laughs> Great. You have a sword. Now, what do you do? Go east. You travel east. And, you know, and it, tell, and it unfolds the story with a lot of puzzles. Well, anyway, this game company um, was looking for a writer and they happened to have licenses for a Stephen King novella and two James Bond movies. And so my agent thought of me, you know, uh, and at the time I was kind of into those games. Uh, I was already, you know, playing the pencil and paper role playing games around. And uh, I had kind of messed with the, the Zork type games. So I kind of knew what they were talking about. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And that got me. It was like, a, you know, I never planned to do that, but I fell into it. And for the next 10 years, you know, I worked for some of the biggest game companies uh, imaginable. <laughs> um, that took me into the mid nineties and I was actually still working for a game company when the Ian Fleming family called and said, do you want to write the novels? And so that's, that took me out of the game industry, <laughs> but to, to back to your question, um, I think I was off, you know, you have to kind of be on editors, short lists of authors who do tie in works. And I was on this one editor. I mean, he, he was my editor for the James Bond books. And so he knew I could do stuff like that. And he wanted to know. The first one I did was Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell. And um, so I didn't know the Splinter Cell game or anything. I, I looked at it. You know, I tried to play it. I kept dying in the first two minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they give you the script. They give you the entire script of the game. And so you can read it, you know, and get a good handle on what the world is just from that. And that was the very first game. So uh, I was there on the, at the beginning of it. So I did two of those. And again, the same thing with Metal Gear Solid. I didn't know it, but um, the fact that I was doing the first two games as novels, then I could start at the beginning and do it that way. Yeah. Obviously with IP, intellectual properties, of, you're coming into a world where people have a lot of expectations and and unfortunately, we don't live in a world where those expectations are, are kept quietly in somebody's mind somewhere. They spill out everywhere they can. So how was it dealing with both the good-natured fans as well as the toxic fans that are out there when dealing with any kind of intellectual property like that? 
Well, I mean, like, say, James Bond. I mean, that's as big as Batman or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, or Star Wars or Star Trek. And, you know, so there's there's legions of fans everywhere and they all have their own opinions. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I had fans who loved me and fans that hated me and fans who sent me wonderful mail and fans who sent me death threats. So, um, yeah, it was part of the <laughs> it was part of the game. <laughs> it's, you know. Being a writer and, and putting stuff out there, I guess any artist, whether you do music or whatever, um, if you put it out there for the public, it's going to get critiqued, you know, so you either pay attention to it or don't pay attention to it or take it with a grain of salt or take it to heart or what, but, you know, you've got to have a certain attitude, I guess. So, so which one of those did you find uh, worked best for you? <laughs> a little bit of everything. <laughs> You know, it's always great to hear praise, you know, uh, and, you know, the, the bad stuff was, you know, it's it's upsetting, but uh, I guess it's character building. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> you either turn into a hero or turn into a supervillain based on those backstories, right? Right. I'm in a tangent just a little bit. I have a museum studies background and realizing that one of your books actually got turned into a museum, I was kind of curious to learn a little bit more. So the museum ran for like 11 years in Nishima, Japan, around 007 Man with the Red Tattoo. Uh, could you share a little bit about sure. what that experience was like? <laughs> yeah, well, that was pretty amazing. Um, the Man with the Red Tattoo uh, was my sixth and final original James Bond novel, and it takes place in Japan. And when I was doing the research, I found this island, Naoshima Island, that was an art center. Uh, they had several art museums there. And there was this one place called Vanessa, Vanessa House, which was an art museum as well as a hotel. And uh, when I was researching it, I saw pictures of it and I thought, God, it looks like a Bond set. You know, it looks like a, a set designed by Ken Adam, who was the guy who did all the early Bond novels, the, the, the sets of the movies. And um, so I set the story there. And I, I traveled there to research it. So I visited the island and got to know some people there and the man who ran Vanessa House. And, and then the book came out and, you know, um, and the, the, the government of that island, the, the pre prefecture there, they were so pleased and happy to be in a Bond novel that they started uh, trying to promote the area for tourism more than it even already was, hopefully to try to get the movie people to get come there to make a movie. So they erected this muse museum and uh, they called it the 007 Man with the Red Tattoo Museum. And it was, I, you know, I didn't think it was going to last very long, but it lasted 11 years before it finally closed. And uh, they had me and my wife uh, come over for um, the ribbon cutting. And, it, you know, the press from all over Japan was there and it was crazy. No, that was, that was, that was quite an honor to have a, a museum in your of one of your books you know for a, for a little while anyway that's so cool that you're able to visit it too and see what it looked like and yeah 11 years is a long time for a museum yeah. to sustain itself yeah well I donated you know a lot of the research materials and stuff mm -hmm. so they had a whole case you know of of that was devoted to me and you know pictures of me and my family and my dog and uh you know all my research materials and stuff and I got it all back, you know, once the museum closed. But yeah, it was cool. 
And do you still avidly watch the new James Bonds as they come out and read the new James Bond titles? Sure. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll always be a fan. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm now part of the family, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll see every Bond movie more than once. (laughs) I'll own own them all and, and all the books, too. Yeah. I just heard that the newest James Bond is going to be a female author. Kim uh, oh, yeah, Kim Sherwood. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it's a spinoff. It's a spinoff. Okay. From what I under, from what I understand, it's a spinoff. And James Bond's not even in the books. It's about ah. the du- it's about the double O section, and so it, the main characters are going to be other double O agents. That's from okay. what I understand. So is is James Bond in the 007, is that a is he a specific character or is that just a title that somebody inherits and they as they replace them kind of say? That is a crazy fan theory. Uh, James Bond is a person and he was designated the number 007. So that is a fan theory that, you know, to explain away all the different actors who have played him, you know, or, you know, you know, what what's going to happen, you know, now I. I'm not going to talk about the latest movie. I don't know if you've seen it, what happens at the end of that. <laughs> but um, if that's the way they go, I'm not going to be happy. I don't think a lot of fans would be happy. No, James Bond was a specific character. Um, what's it like writing somebody who is, I guess, a perpetual character in that case? Obviously, it's kind of like comic books. You have to keep reinventing the backstories of them. Um, how do you do that with a Bond? Well, if, if we had kept the age of Ian Fleming's Bond, he would have been in his 70s when I was writing him. And he would be, you know, what, uh, uh, 90 something now. Uh, So just like with Batman or Spider-Man or anybody, we sort of pick him up intact from the decade he was originally in and then plop him down unchanged into the decade you're writing in. Uh, You might acknowledge that well, he's a little older and wiser, but you'd never say how old he is or anything like that. And and you don't be specific about dates in the 50s, say, or anything like that. But you stay true to the origins, if that makes any sense. It does. As you mentioned, you did some uh, text-based games. Uh, what is it like trying to write interactive fiction? Well, that is a challenge uh it's a discipline of its own i think it it helps if you actually play those kind of games which i was into very much so and i think my theater background helped a lot i was a stage director as well as a music composer but uh when my professor in college really emphasized the analysis of a script before you even cast it you know you've really got to know line by line, you know, what is, what is the subtext, you know, behind every line and what is, what's really going on and, and breaking it up into beats and uh, knowing what the tempo is going to be and, and all this, uh, mapping it out basically and planning how you're going to block the play on paper first. It's almost like storyboarding. That's the way I was taught. And so your mind works in that kind of bird's eye view and at the same time you can go down to the ground level and work together somehow it's the best way i can describe it and also you write in branches like you okay so you write the path if you do this 
But then you go back and then you write the path if you do that. And then you write the path that does that. So you end up with a phone, you know, a big giant textbook, you know, of, of the script. And that's what they were. They were huge, you know, because it has every possible possible path. What happens, you know? I mean, sometimes you you build in that it's a dead end or something, but you still got to write that dead end. You know, all the different curly Q uh, mazes that gets to your final solution. So there, there has to be more than one way to get there. Kind of the the, the web leading to, to different things, just different paths getting to that same second yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah. And it's fun. I mean, um, and it takes, you know, it takes, a, I, I did, um, I wrote this, the, uh, I was the head writer for a, a very popular game in the early 90s called Ultima 7, The Black Gate. And man, that's an entire universe of writing you know, not only the main plot, but then all these little subplots that take place in the towns. And I had a, a team of writers working under me. So I would direct what they're doing, but I had to have the overall scope of everything. A lot of storylines to keep track of. Yes, exactly. I really enjoyed the um, first book of the Black Stiletto series. It was really fun. I I appreciated that she was, you know, feisty, stubborn, but she was still very sweet and she was very athletic and she could just kind of pick up martial arts and throwing knives, but she cared about her friends and her family. How did you decide to start that storyline? And um, did you have any sources of inspiration for her character? Yes. Um, my mother-in-law, uh, had Alzheimer's and my wife and I had her nearby us in a, in a, a, first in an assisted living facility and then, then in a nursing home once it got really bad. Um, so I had, you know, firsthand experience about that. And at the time, this was in the late 2000s, it was around 2008, 2009. And I had an agent at the time you know, we were talking about, well, what should I do next? And he said, well, you should write something women would like, because women are, you know, buy the most books. And I just kind of, you know, superhero movies were just kind of starting up again. You know, uh, Iron Man had come out and Dark Knight. And uh, I said, huh, what about a female superhero? He just kind of went, that's a great idea. Why don't you think about that? So I started thinking about that. And, and I also had in the back of my mind, I, I, I wanted to write a story, a mystery story about a, a grown-up son who discovers something about his mother, that she had some kind of dark secret and he discovers it. So I had that, I had the superhero element and I had the Alzheimer's element. And they all kind of just spun together and became the Black Stiletto. So I hope you'll read the rest, the other four I, books. I have because... them downloaded, so they're ready. Okay. okay. <laughs> and I enjoyed I, the first one I did as an audio book, and she did a fantastic job narrating. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. And the, the guy, too. It's a guy and a girl. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He did great, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. And which leads me into another question is that in your bond, because I was reading one of the Union Trilogy titles as well as this one, um, they point of view uh, kind of hops. So you've got kind of your hero, but then you also have your villain's point of view as well. So yeah. how do you keep all of the point of views straight? I'm an outliner. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, writers will tell you they're either a plotter or a pantser. 
they they write by the seat of their pants. And, you know, I really admire people, the, the latter type of writers, you know, that can just sit down and start, you know, Stephen King is one of those. He can just sit down and just start typing from the very beginning and let his imagination go and do it. Other people, myself included, have to plot it all out first. I want to know where I'm going. I want to know how it's going to end. I want to know all the twists and turns. Uh, because, you know, if you start writing, you get a bunch of pages and then you suddenly realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to go that direction. I should go this way or I, this should happen. I've got to throw out 50 pages and start again. Whereas in an outline, you put my outlines are not outlines. They're, they're basically prose treatments uh, that are set out in block paragraphs. And each block paragraph represents a chapter. What's going to happen in that chapter plot wise? And so it's easier to throw out a couple of paragraphs <laughs> than it is 50 pages of stuff you've already written. So um, I really map it all out in an outline, a prose treatment, and, it, and I spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, I spend a month or two just on the 20 page treatment and uh, I get it perfect in my mind, uh, as perfect as I can get it. Now that doesn't mean I can't change it while I'm writing. If I'm writing, you know, in the middle of the book, and I suddenly get a, this inspired idea to, I'm going to kill that guy <laughs> instead of letting him live. What happens then, you know? And then I can go back to my outline and change that and then sort of see what the domino effect is. But, and, and that's been known to happen in, in my books too. I would say 85% of the time I've stuck to my outline and I've never changed it. I was thinking you might be a plotter because for the Black Stiletto, it references the other titles in book one, like little threads that from the synopsis of the others. So I was like, I have a feeling that you are a plotter. <laughs> well, when I did the Black Stiletto, I set out, I, I just arbitrarily, you know, because the Harry Potter books, that was seven books. Mm -hmm. That was so successful, you know, seven books. And it's really kind of tells one big story in seven little stories. So I kind of wanted to do the same thing. I didn't, I, I, I arbitrarily went for five instead of seven. So I knew there were going to be five books, but I wanted to know how it was going to end up. So I basically kind of figured out how the story was going to end, but I didn't know what books two and three and, and four were going to be. Uh, so I knew I was going to be working toward the end of book five. And then as I came to books two and three and four, then I would create my own story, but still be going toward that final thing. So that's how I did that. It makes sense. So can you share with us who some of your favorite heroes or heroines or villains might be? Well, obviously, James Bond is, is, is a major, <laughs> a major figure in my life. Um, gosh, uh, well, I do. I do like the Jack Reacher books. Uh, Lee Child's a friend of mine. I've read all of his books and I like Reacher. I'm not sure, you know, certain specific characters. I can name lots of authors that, that I enjoy. Like, for example, for many, many, many years, I would say that Ruth Rindle is my favorite living writer until she passed away a couple, you know, three or four years ago. Uh, and Ruth Rindle had, um, she had a series of a English detective, a police detective named Wexford, but she also had these standalone books that were my favorite. And they were very creepy told from the point of view of the criminal psychological suspense novels that were awesome. And I was into her for decades. Gosh, um, I read Michael Connelly. I read 
John Sanford. I read John Grisham. I read all sorts of stuff. Would you say, uh, having now seen the, the new Reacher, Tom Cruise or Allard Richardson? Who, who, who are we going with? <laughs> well, Alan Richardson is Jack Reacher. <laughs> <laughs> He's, I mean, I, I just posted on my Facebook page just yesterday, I think, you know, how much I'm liking the series and people, I got over, you know, way almost 150 comments of people going, we love it, you know, so I'm talking about that actor, uh, Alan Richardson. My, my, my experience with him was a uh, Blue Mountain State. So I'm curious to see how he's going to translate from that to, uh, to Reacher. Oh, he's, uh, watch it. He's very good. We play a game here. I, I've got to keep it PG because Sarah gets on me if I try to say the other words, um, but it's a uh, kiss, Mary ditch. So you got to, I've given you three things. You've got to like one, love one, get rid of one. Hmm. Uh, I, I'll see what it is. I'm going to give you different uh, topics you can choose from, but I'm going to kind of say them in such a way that you may not know where I'm going with these. Uh, first one is ties that bind or silver screen. Let's go silver screen. All right. So you got to lo- like, love, get rid of one of these three duck soup, Dr. Strange love or Casablanca. Impossible. <laughs> I love all three. <laughs> first of all, Duck Soup is one of my five favorite movies of all time. It's a great movie. Yes. Dr. Strangelove is a Stanley Kubrick movie, and Stanley Kubrick is my favorite filmmaker of all time. And I know his fa- I even know his family. And uh, Casablanca is simply one of the greatest Hollywood movies. It's made. almost Period. like I've done research on trying to pick these ones to make you have to choose really hard. Yeah. So, no, I, you know, that's I can comment on the three choices, but uh, I don't know if I can do that. The other one ties that bind would have been choosing the, the, the bonds, whether it would be Craig Connery or Bronson. Connery definitely is my favorite. Uh, I'll always say Connery is James Bond and then there's everybody else. Obviously, a lot of your writings uh, tend to be kind of genre style basis. Is being a genre writer or being known as a genre writer a bad thing? No, not at all. Um, I pretty much write what, what I read. So, I you know, I read a lot of thrillers and mysteries and that's just what i enjoy uh i I sometimes read some science fiction but not very much uh i do read biographies i read what nonfiction books i read are generally usually in in the entertainment world like you know biographies of somebody or filmmakers because you know i also taught film history at a college for over a decade so i'm a film history nut and i do monthly lectures on film so movies are a, a, a big thing for me um I know a lot about movies. So yeah, that's what I, that's what I read. So that's what I write and that's what I do. You know, if somebody came to me and said, we want you to write, I don't know, um, a Jane Austen style romance, I would just kind of go, you got the wrong guy. And being a film historian, um, we attended your, your last virtual uh, Dan and Raymond's movie club, which was oh, really you did. fun. I, you yeah. were there, the one about we were, the social problems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we attended that one. Oh, wow. Well, this, this week we're doing Quentin Tarantino on Thursday night. I, I may be joining you again. <laughs> <laughs> the um, spans a topic of film. Like there's tons of different kinds of films. Uh, do you, and this is the 15th season, correct? That you've yes. been working together with Dan. So what are your personal favorite films to teach when you have these sort of classes? Well, we, usually, we, we generally have a, a topic like, the one we we did, we'll, we'll either concentrate on a filmmaker, like we're doing this Thursday. Sometimes we'll do a genre, like we'll do, uh, you know, the greatest film noir. 
So we'd had a whole program on, we picked, you know, 15 titles that these are our favorite film noir movies. And we show clips, you know, from them and talk about a little bit about the history of them and stuff. Gosh, we've done horror films, science fiction films, comedy films, political films, holiday films, animated films, love stories, musicals, the greatest villains, movie villains, um, just stuff like that. I mean, we have over 100 topics <laughs> since we've been doing it at least twice a month for 15 years. So that's a how lot many of topics work we prepared have. Too. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You can tell that you guys enjoy and then having it be virtual, I'm sure you're getting more outside of your region, which is probably really cool. Yeah, we have now people all over the world attending. Where before we would do it in person at our <laughs> at the library that's sponsoring us. And you know, you can only get so many people in there. And but now since Zoom, it's really expanded it. And you know, the libraries are kind of in a quandary. What do we do now when we can finally go back in person? Do we do it just hybrid or what? You know, do we do it um, which is a little more complicated technically. Yes. As someone trying to do some hybrid programs, it is much more challenging because then you have to look at the tech side while running something and it doesn't always go so smoothly. Right. And if you someone have to kind of gets lost. And if you have to show film clips too, that adds another layer that, that uh, is difficult. If personally, I'd, I would prefer i'd love it if we just stayed on zoom from now on you know i think it works perfectly that way but hey, it works yeah. for me it means i can see more of them yeah yeah so uh, kind of touching on that that is a library-based program and we are a library-based podcast what are some of your most memorable library experiences and I, i'm assuming you have a library card oh yes yeah I'm, I'm a big library person i love the library ever since i was little i grew up in a small west texas town um, if you've seen the last picture show, that gives you a good kind of good idea of the kind of town I grew up in. Um, and I would go to the public library just to look at the New York Times, <laughs> just to look at the, the vast array of Broadway shows and movie th movies playing there that, you know, never came to where I lived. And I, you know, I would go, you know, as soon as I graduate high school, I'm out of here. <laughs> and yeah. So I always knew I would leave that town. And, you know, I went to college in Austin, Texas, which was quite a bit bigger, but still wasn't the big city. But after Austin, I spent one year in Houston working at a theater and then I moved to New York City. So I, I lived in New York for 11 years and I always had a library card wherever I went. And what are you um, currently reading or watching? I am actually reading right now a biography of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, it is the uh, Patrick McGilligan, uh, but it's, a, it's one that's like this thick. And I've read several biographies of Alfred Hitchcock already, but I've never read this one. And it's, it's probably the biggest one that I've ever read. And so I'm, I'm in the middle of that now. And I have a new book that I just completed um, that's going to be published in October but I can't really talk about it yet. The publisher doesn't want me to reveal the title or anything yet until they're ready. And we're going to say, okay, this is it. <laughs> you know? So just know that uh, I do have something else coming out this year. So we'll, we'll get it on pre-order whenever we'll keep an eye out for your name and oh, add it yes, to the, the order yes. list. You should, we should know in a month or two. 
Okay, excellent, excellent. A lot of people, when they talk about genre writing, they, they use it to kind of write about things that they couldn't directly write about in normal kind of fiction, kind of underlying social problems. But to what extent do you think fiction can improve or influence human life? Oh, my. Um, well, I think fiction has always been used to tell parables and fables, and parables and fables give you lessons. So I think if, if the fiction isn't there strictly to entertain you, then it can certainly be used to bring up social issues or whatever. I mean, just look at To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. You know, we talked, to, since you were at our uh, uh, movie club, the one movie we talked about, uh, Crossfire, which was, uh, which was really a film noir. It was a crime story. It was about a murder. It was about a detective solving the murder. But it was also about anti-Semitism. And it was the first movie ever to even deal with that subject. And uh, so in the guise of a mystery crime movie, there was a little lesson there about anti-Semitism. So, yeah, fiction can do that. That was the one about the uh, Marine, uh, Marines. The Navy. Had, yeah, the yes. Navy guys. Yeah. Yes. Had, had to go back and stretch my memory going, which one was that one? <laughs> yeah, had uh, Robert Young, Robert Mitchum, and Robert Ryan, the three Roberts. <laughs> and you are a skilled pianist. You've completed over 100 videos on your YouTube channel recently because of the pandemic. But what are some of your ways to kind of like take a break from writing and then get creative in different ways so that you can kind of problem solve and then go on to your next, do you like kind of, do a little bit of both all the time or? Well, uh, music is definitely an outlet for me. And um, I, I have played professionally for most of my life. Um, I've played at restaurants and given concerts and, you know, I play in my synagogue band, and all that. So, so that is definitely an outlet. Although this past year, I've had a problem with my arms. Uh, I have, um, I developed what they call tennis elbow in both arms, um, lateral epicondylitis. And it has curbed my piano playing for this year. I've had to like take a break from it, unfortunately. And I'm slowly healing, but I'm also getting treatments and stuff. It's a, uh, I guess it's a symptom of getting old, which I am, so. But uh, what else? Um, that's really kind of the only other creative outlet I do uh, other than, you know, uh, watching movies and reading and taking walks and traveling. I love to travel. I like to cook. I am a, I am a chef. Uh, I have my own dishes that I make and dishes my wife makes and we trade off, you know, okay. Who's making dinner tonight? Oh, okay. I'll do it. <laughs> Which comes easier for you, the music or the words? Uh, I would say the music does, believe it or not. Um, you did mention there that you were a world traveler. Obviously, um, these past couple of years, it's been a little difficult to get, to do that. Yeah. Um, how has that affected your ability to write? I know you had said that a lot of, like with the uh, the red tattoo, uh, you had you you wanted to visit and see the various settings that you were going to use, kind of thing. Right. Well, I I did. You know, when I was doing Bond, I traveled to all those locations. I did, um, and so uh, I do believe you should write what you know uh, and. So a lot of a lot of the books that I've written have taken place in areas where I've lived, like New York or in the Chicago area now where I live now or in West Texas, where I grew up. 
that's that's fertile fertile ground for mysteries and suspense. <laughs> uh, um, but um, luckily, though, I mean, when I was doing Bond, that was in the '90s, and you know, Google Maps wasn't as sophisticated then. You know, now, gosh, you can you can travel to those places without actually leaving your desk. You can use the little Google Map guy and go down to Street View and walk around Paris. You know, that's really kind of nice. You can you can see that stuff. Uh, it, it helps to you know taste the food and stay in the hotels and 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 get and feel the ambiance and feel the vibe and all that. But I generally have been to all the places I've written about for the most part, not all, but mostly. And Black Stiletto is all the places you have lived, correct? No, it is. Yes, uh, it's mostly in New York. But yeah, she's from. There's a little bit from the other places from, too. She's from West Texas, and she goes back there. Uh, and um, the last two books take place in Los Angeles. Uh, now, I've never lived in Los Angeles, but I've been there a lot. Uh, I've been to Hollywood on numerous occasions and worked in, you know, spent some time there and stuff. So there's that. You kind of made me start thinking about this when you started mentioning that that West Texas town. What is it about Westerns and Noir that makes them combine so easily, I guess? Because we're starting to see kind of an influx of that the, the, that style. Yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, it's It's got this sort of Old West mythology that kind of attaches itself to it. Uh, you've got the landscape, the sort of lonely la- landscape you know, of vast vistas where no buildings are and, you know, sunsets that are 180 degrees and maybe those uh, those lonely pump jacks, you know, that go like that, you know. And um, it just, it gives you a, a mood, you know, a very specific kind of melancholy for me anyway. And then, you know, the people are, you know, they're not city folk. i'll just put it that way um and that that allows for many colorful characters and uh i mean not that there aren't colorful characters in the big city too there are there's colorful characters everywhere a lot of people talk about finding their happy mode of writing now have you found yours and if you did what did it take and if you haven't what would it take you to find that that space where you are just in the zone comfortable writing you're looking at it this is my office. This is where I write. Um, I sometimes put on music while I'm writing. Sometimes I don't. I'm, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I can work at home. I don't have a day job and, and I've been freelance for since the nineties. So yeah, that that's, that's my happy zone. It's I can, I can set my own hours. I can work in my pajamas. <laughs> I don't have to get, take a shower all day, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> It's nice. Yeah. And also, you know, I can, I don't have to, unless, unless it's a work for hire gig novelization thing where I've got a deadline, I don't have a deadline. I can kind of set my own hours and, 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 you know, I, when I am writing a book um, after I've done the outline and I'm ready to actually start writing, I set myself a goal to write a scene a day. Now that that's not that, that might be a whole chapter. It might not be. It might be two pages long. It might be twenty pages long. As long as it it's a beginning of a scene and an end of a scene. If I can get that done every day, and pile it up, then in two to three months, three months usually, I've got a book. 
And I tend to not go back and revise and correct while I'm writing the first draft. I like to get through the first draft and finish it and get the whole thing down before I start going back and rereading it and correcting and stuff. Because I think you can get bogged down in rewriting uh, and you lose the momentum of the pacing of the story. And that's something I learned from Ian Fleming. Mm. He would always write the first draft without looking back. Would you say there's a difference between your writing habits when you're writing short pieces versus novels? I don't write a lot of short pieces. I have, but... Or interactive you, fiction, for that matter. I've never thought of it as being different. I Even with the interactive fiction, I kind of outlined what I was going to do. I didn't just sort of start off and go crazy. I don't think there is a difference. And I know we started a little early. Well, I've got, got one quick question real You've quick. you got one more question? Because okay. I'm, I'm squinting here, but over what would be your right shoulder right now, it looks like you've got a a grouping of Marvel graphic novels back there. And I'm curious which ones they are. Oh, back here? Yes, sir. Uh, well, I have, uh, you know, the Marvel Masterworks collections. Mm -hmm. I have all the Spider-Man early ones and the Fantastic Four, uh, which were my favorites in the 60s. I, I started off with Marvel when they started off. Gotcha. I was that age. I actually owned at one time the Amazing Spider-Man number one. Oh. And I don't have it anymore. Uh, but uh, I did have it for many years, and at the time I didn't. I, I'm, I didn't know then to take care of it, and so by the time I sort of rediscovered it that I had it, it was in tatters. <laughs> it was like the covers off, and you know, and it was like it's falling apart here. But I took it to a comic store, and I said, "Is this worth anything?" And you know, the guy was looking at it, and I got like 350 bucks for it. And this was in the early 90s. And that's probably about what it was worth because it was in terrible shape, terrible shape. So at least I got something for it. What else? Uh, I have a little bit of Thor. But yeah, I'm a fan of the Marvel stuff. And over here. Mm -hmm. I see I the bonds. I, yeah, they're the bonds, except this was made before Daniel Craig. This was made in the 90s. So uh -huh. and they're signed. They're signed by each one. There's Sean that's Connery. Cool. There's Pierce Brosnan, Roger Moore, uh, Timothy Dalton, and over here is George Lazenby, and that's Ian Fleming in the middle. Nice. So I need to redo it, get Daniel Craig's picture in there somewhere. And that's Ursula Andrus up there. That's signed. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Oh, gee. Um, well, uh, I would say, you know, check out my website, uh, RaymondBenson.com. Uh, you'll see, you know, all my books and where you can get them and information about where the Dan and Raymond movie club is because, you know, now with us on zoom, you can join from wherever you are. Uh, I am on Facebook. You can look me up. Uh, I have a personal page as well as a author page. And actually there's more action on my personal page. So check that out. And I'm on Twitter at, at Raymond Benson. What I'm looking at based on what I registered for, you got Palantine public library coming up. You've got Heights Memorial library coming up. Arlington Heights. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's the two coming up. And then I'll, I'll pretty soon I'll post our March shows, which will all be uh, our Oscar show, our annual Oscar show. We do that at every library. That's very popular. Every year we do an Oscar show where we, you know, we talk about the nominees and show clips from the nominees and we do our predictions. Do you have any, just give us one prediction you got that you think is going to make it. Oh, there's no question that 
Denzel Washington and Will Smith and Andrew Garfield will be nominated for Best Actor and Benedict Cumberbatch. So that's four out of the five. The fifth, the fifth one, man, it can be a number of people. Uh, and then for, for actress, uh, I reckon that uh, Jennifer Hudson will probably get nominated. Maybe Nicole Kidman. Uh, that one, this one's more hard. This one's harder to to, to uh, predict. There's a there's a number of names that are vying for the for the five slots. Uh, Kristen Stewart, maybe for Spencer. So mm-hmm. we'll see. You know, I'm so sure Power of the Dog is going to get a lot of nominations. I think. Uh, what's the other? Another biggie. Um, West Side Story could get nominated a lot. Tick, Tick, Boom, I really liked. Coda, I really liked. There's a bunch. Yeah. You see this, Sarah? I'm going to take our podcast budget right after this, and I'm going to Vegas, and I'm putting those down as their predictions. They're going to be big. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the, th- the time to do that is actually after you see our show where we predict who the winners are. Mm. Oh, yes. Got ahead of myself. But and we're pretty, we're pretty uh, good at predicting the a high track record. Yeah, we, we've got it down to a science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Raymond, for joining us on Unstacked. Several Raymond Vincent titles are in the library collection for checkout. They can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Also, check out his website, RaymondVinson.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>